Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Steve Welsh. I am privileged to get to share God's Word with you this morning, and I am uh, humbled by uh, just when every time you get to study God's Word and uh, present the teaching there and the truths there, it is humbling and overwhelming, and I think you'll find that to be true today as we go through the Scriptures. So I know it's, uh, for me, I'm a teacher at heart, uh, sitting before a camera or you know, speaking is not a natural, comfortable thing to do, so I apologize in advance if I am uh, not as organized as Shannon or not as uh, thorough or skilled, but hopefully God will be great in my weakness and you guys and me will all be blessed by what he teaches us. So yeah, as you know, we've been going through Mark and we're going to continue that study. So our scripture today is in Mark chapter 9 and we're going to be reading verse 30 through 37. So if you have a Bible, let's turn there. If you're not, it'll be on the screen. I'll be reading from the ESV version. So follow along if you can, and we'll see what God says. So Jesus, Jesus is ta- or Paul, or Mark is talking to us, and he tells us, he says, They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for letting us Take time out of our lives to study your word and be discipled at your feet, to worship in song, to worship in uh, prayer, to worship as a family, even if it's in front of a computer or an iPhone or uh, however it is. Father, we set aside time on on this morning to, uh, to study, to focus on you, to hear from you, God. I pray that you would speak to us now. Father, you'd help us set aside the worries of the world and uh, all the the drama and the tension. Father, the rumors and the the strife that eats up the news, things that cause us fear and doubt. Help us to put that aside, God, and focus on you, the main thing. Father, as Christians, you are the main thing. You are where we put our hope and trust. And I pray you speak to us now and guide us in the Scripture and reassure us about our lives, about the lives you've called us to as Christians. Father, we trust you. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, obviously, uh, there are a couple of different things that Jesus is talking about in this scripture. Um, but I want to, it's mainly going to be about pride. Our lesson is all about pride today. And let me share this quote from Thomas Terrence. Uh, I've never heard of the guy, but what he said here makes a lot of sense. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. I think you would agree with Mr. Terrence on his uh, statement about pride. I know, um, just speaking from my own heart, when some of the, and you know, we have a lot of young couples in our church, and I don't mean to pry, <laughs> but I know when Marcia and I got married, and those first few years, there was a lot of swallowing of pride. And I had to figure out how to navigate with each other and put someone else before me and that was hard to do so uh, you know, we need to continue to pray for not just uh, our members but our young couples as they do that pride can be very very hurtful so uh, I just speaking for me guys you can always say I'm sorry and, and 
and swallow that pride and move on. Well, let's see what's going on here in Mark. So I want to uh, take us back to the, to the scripture and let's look at Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And Jesus and, and Mark tells us. Now, if you remember, uh, Mark is speaking mainly from Peter's perspective. This is somebody call, uh, calls the Gospel of Mark the memoirs of Peter. So that's where Mark gets most of his information. And he's, uh, he's telling us this. And he says, they went from there and passed through Galilee. Where are they coming from? We know that they've just been on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they've just come down, and then they had the, the healing with the demons and all that, and now they're passing through Galilee. Now, this is a little bit different. I don't know that, that I ever really noticed this until studying this passage. Jesus, and Mark tells us that Jesus did not want anyone to know. That's kind of weird. What, what are we talking about here? This is a moment when Jesus is not speaking publicly to a crowd or a group. Uh, this is a private conversation with his disciples. This is an intimate conversation. And he's really speaking just to his disciples. And we get a picture of that conversation because, of course, Peter was there. So these are private lessons meant just for the disciples. And, uh, of course, we get to be a part of that. So he tells us a little further on. He didn't want anyone to know. But in verse 31, he tells us, he says, for, which means because, because he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. A little play on words, Son of Man, hands of men. And they will kill him when he's killed. After three days, he'll rise again. But they did not understand this. We're afraid to ask him. So let's, we're just kind of break this apart and go through it. Um, so just a little, and, and a side note here, guys, before we get into this. One of the reasons that Jesus did not want people to know what was going on with him and the disciples is because the world doesn't understand what, what happens in the church. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. It's very hard for an unbeliever to look in the church and understand what happens in there. Uh, those the truths, the teaching, the fellowship, the worship is all meant for believers we got to get people saved, and they come into the church, and their eyes are open, the scales fall off, and everything is revealed. So it's very possible that these, these teachings to the disciples are meant for just believers. So uh, the world would not understand, and that's something we can trust. that God, God is not going to tell us anything that's not meant for us, and we know that. All right, so when Jesus is teaching, what does that mean? He means he causes them to learn. That's what the word taught means. Um, so we know we have a great teacher in our church, Shannon, always is always teaching us, always causing us to learn, and I'm, I, for one, am very grateful. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and we know this is an Old Testament title that Daniel gives Jesus. It emphasizes his humanity, and that's really, we know that Jesus had to be fully human in order to be the sacrifice he was. And he also tells us that the Son of Man is going to be delivered, and this word deliver is kind of unique. Uh, it means it's a legal term. It means two things. That he's given over for judgment and punishment as a criminal. And he's also betrayed. And the same word is used when Judas delivers Christ over to the Pharisees. So um, he tells us, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. And when he's killed afterwards, it says, uh, we know that, hang on a second here, I lost my thought. <laughs> if he he wants the disciples to understand what's going on here, what will happen when he gets to Jerusalem. But they don't get it. So why not? Why don't they understand what he's talking about? They don't, they're afraid to ask, and they're, they don't understand, but they're not even going to ask him. They're not, gonna, they're not even going to approach him with a question, which is kind of, that's really not good. You guys, we, we can ask God anything. We shouldn't be afraid to ever approach God's throne. We should tremble in reverence but not be afraid to ask God. So there's a couple reasons the disciples might be afraid. They may be remembering Peter's earlier scene with Christ. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, 32, uh, Jesus is talking about his death again. And Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, no, let it not ever be. And Jesus tells Peter, you know, get thee behind me, Satan. And that's a pretty strong rebuke. So this, is pretty, this, this may be pretty fresh on the disciples' mind, and they may not want to have that happen again. But they still don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. 
Another reason might be the disciples have what is called a messianic triumphalism. A messianic triumphalism. Uh, that's, that's a big term. But it merely means that the disciples expected him to rule. They, were, they expected him to come into their kingdom. They were coming down from the mountain of transfiguration. They went down through Galilee to Samaria and then on to Jerusalem. And they know that they were expecting him to come into his kingdom. They were expecting him to be a political and a military messiah and to establish his kingdom. They didn't understand what he was talking about, so they didn't ask. But the Bible tells us that the cross is, a, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, the cross to the Jews is a stumbling block into its folly to the Gentiles. The Jews were interesting people. They were very prideful people. And we'll talk a little more about that. But there's another reason why uh, the disciples may not have understood. If you look over in, chapter, in Luke chapter 18, verse 34, uh, it's kind of an interesting. Let's read that real quick. Luke chapter 18, verse 34. Let's see here. So Jesus, again, is talking about what's going to happen to him. He's speaking about the Son of Man and about the, the sh he'll be shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed and on the third day rise again, verse 33. And then in verse 34, the Bible tells us, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The Bible teaches us that the truth of what was going on with Jesus or what had to happen with Jesus was hidden from the disciples. Why does God do that? Why does he hide that truth, hide that reality from the disciples? Folks, I don't know. God, has a, God had a plan. I don't know. So, But he does tell us these things are hidden. I think uh, if you're just, you know, we can speculate. This is all speculation. It could be to protect them. Had they known what was going to happen, can you imagine how they would have reacted? If Jesus said, yeah, I'm going to die, and they really truly understood he was fixing to be crucified on a cross, what would those 12 men have do? You know, what, can you, what would they have done? Taken him away? They would have kidnapped him and carried him away until he came to his right mind? Uh, we don't know, but for whatever reason, God hid these truths from them. We do know later that he revealed, you know, the disciples understood everything that uh, later on after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and after the Holy Spirit came down at the day of Pentecost, that their minds were open and they understood what Jesus had to do and why he did it. We know that Jesus had to die. It was his purpose. He had to give his life as a ransom for many. He was our substitute and restored a relationship with God for all men, all men who believe. Yet the disciples were afraid to ask him about this. In this, in this conversation, I kind of wonder if they weren't embarrassed a little bit. If we weren't embarrassed a little bit. Some, and, and I dare say that we are the same. Even today, we are, the, we, we are the same. We don't always understand what God is doing, even what God is saying to us in the Scriptures. We may not understand what he's doing afterwards. But what are we to do? What, what did the disciples do? Did they run off? Did they call him crazy? Did they abandon? Well, we know they abandoned him when he got arrested. But at this point, they didn't run off. They stayed with him. So that's the le I mean, I think that's what we have to do as Christians. We need to stay with God. We need to trust God. We need to know that he is in control. And we need to trust him. We need to do what he says, even when we don't always understand it. Okay, we're moving on. They didn't understand what we were saying. They were afraid to ask him. We don't really know why. Those are some possible reasons. All right, verse 33 and 34. So they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, he, did he not know? Of course he knew. He's you know, omniscient. He knows everything. So why does he do this? This is what a good teacher does. He meets his students where they are. He doesn't say, guys, I tell you, there are some, some teachers who are a little bit off in the way they handle kids. They'll, they'll stop talking about that. You know, hush. And some of them don't say hush. They say words that are kind of mean. I have to tell them all the time, don't say those kinds of things. We can say, be, please be quiet. And, but Jesus doesn't do any of that. He asks them, what were you discussing 
It's a polite way to say, you guys were sure arguing a lot. What were you arguing about? He wants them to confess that. He wants them to, to tell about it. And you can see their reaction. But they kept silent because they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, guys, this is sort of the conversation you might hear in third grade. I can throw farther than you. No, I can throw farther than you. Well, I can spit farther than you. Well, I can do this better than you. Well, I'm better at this. Well, I'm better at that. You can hear this conversation, especially among little boys. I don't know if little girls do that, but little boys definitely. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I can do this better. It's always about pride and uh, talking about these things, but you don't really hear that from adults. Uh, now, you guys might be thinking it as you walk into church or not necessarily church, we don't do that in church, but if you walk into the grocery store or your place of work, uh, you might see somebody and say, well, I'm better dressed than they are. Or, well, I can do that job so much better than they can. Well, I'm, gosh, I'm really a lot smarter than that person. Yeah, I have to, I have to tell you, um, I'm confessing. Uh, at, at school, I'm, I'm an assistant principal, you know, at high school, and I really love what I do. And I've done it for a long time, and, I, and I'm really, if I, say I'm, if I say I'm good at it, that's prideful. But if I don't say the truth, that's dishonest. Let's just say I've had this problem before. <laughs> so, uh, you hear these disciples talking, and it's a very immature conversation. It's not appropriate to go around talking about who is the greatest. So that's something, and Jesus calls them on the carpet. He says, uh, what were you talking about? And they kept silent because they had argued about who was the greatest. It's an immature discussion. It's a very prideful discussion. Uh, C.S. Lewis tells us that pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up love, common sense, and, contempt and contentment. Pride is a spiritual cancer, and it is. And the disciples were very proudful. I mean, they'd been with Jesus for a long time. They were the 12 he chose. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They expected to come into rule with Jesus, and they were very prideful people. And that, it's not that they, I mean, that's definitely part of the reason they were so prideful. But they also, the Jewish uh, heritage that they shared was also a prideful religion. Uh, the Jewish people wore these, you know, they wanted everybody to know they were Jewish. It's very much, uh, they put these symbols all over their bodies. Even today, I think you can go and uh, you can find the uh, Hasidic Jews, and they have the curly long hair, and they have the, the robes that have the tassels on the end, and those are outward symbols of their faith, and they're very proud about those things. They wore these phylacteries on their head full of scriptures, and bigger, big tassels on their robes to let people know how holy they were. They had, uh, there's one even, a tradition that when they went to the temple to give their offering, that there was a trumpeter who trumpeted that about this amazing gift that they were giving. They would go and throw ashes on their head in public, and they would say these loud prayers in public. All of this is very prideful. So the, the Jewish faith is full of very big, loud, proud moments. And the, so the disciples, you know, you can't, can you blame them a little bit? That's how they had been taught. Um, so, there's a lot of pride in the disciples. And we know, but we know what the Bible tells us about pride. Proverbs 26, 18 tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There are a lot of examples of pride in the Bible. We know that it was pride that Eve that led Eve to take the fruit in the garden. Uh, Lucifer said, did God really say that? It's good, isn't this good for you? And of course Eve saw that, and he tapped into that pride. You know, he knows that you'll know, God says, the devil said, he knows that you'll know everything if you eat this fruit. And sure enough, she wanted to know everything, and she took that. We know it was pride that caused Lucifer to fall when he wanted to overthrow God in heaven. He was he gathered up his angels, and he was the most beautiful angel, the Bible tells us, and he thought he was all that in a bag of chips. So he launched his uh, rebellion, and God cast him out, all in all his demons. 
We know that it was pride that led Samson to lose his hair and consequently be blinded. He was so proud, he thought nobody could touch him, but he was, his pride led to his fall. We know that pride led Nebuchadnezzar to, be, uh, to, to have Babylon conquered, and he got thrown into the field and acted like an animal for several years. Pride is a very destructive thing. Uh, uh, an example that happened not too long ago, there was a, a lady named Hannah Sabata, and in November 2012, she robbed Cornerstone Bank. So a little 19-year-old girl robbed this bank. Well, Hannah was so proud that she posted her robbery on a YouTube, and she had a sign that said, I'm rich, I'm going shopping. When she got home after the robbery, she told her mother that it was the best day of her life. Well, of course, and then she had to post all this on the video on YouTube. And not too many days later, of course, Hannah was arrested. So pride, big deal. Even today in our culture, we have these iPhones that we carry around with us. And uh, what are people always doing? You know, they're always taking selfies to post their own picture up. Guilty. And then, uh, but they even make these now. We, we're so good about it in our world. We, we feed pride so much. We have selfie sticks so you can get a better picture of yourself and hold it way up in the right angle and the right lighting. So our society is not helping our pride. We have selfie sticks. I, I have one, y'all. I'm talking to myself here. But pride is a bad thing. Um, there was one I heard not too recently about a Fortune 500 CEO and his wife. He, this guy had become such a success. And Fortune 500 company CEO, and he pulled up to a gas station out in the country. They were on a drive, he and his wife. And he got out to go into the restroom, and the gas station attendant came, had come out to help him and was having a conversation with his wife. And the, uh, the man came out and said, you know, he got back in the car and said, who was that? And she said, well, come to find out, the gas station attendant was an old flame, an old boyfriend that she had dated a long time ago. Well, he began to feel pretty special about himself. And he, you know, smug and proud as they're driving off from the gas station, he said, I bet you're pretty, I bet you're thinking, I bet you're pretty happy that you married me and not him. And she says, well, actually what I was thinking was if I had married him, he'd have been a Fortune 500 CEO. So uh, that's pride for you right there. Maybe a little honesty too. So pride can be a bad thing. Are we uh, in the church, do we get prideful? Um, somebody said that oftentimes Christians crawl up on the cross so that they can be better seen. Let me say that again. Oftentimes Christians crawl up on the cross so they can be better seen. Christians are no stranger to pride. We can use our, our religious arrogance and our religious uh, studies and our knowledge and our position as, as ways to exalt ourselves. But we don't have any reason to exalt ourselves. If you exalt yourself, you're just painting a target on your back and asking God to open fire. Right? Because God will take you down. He, he has a way of humbling all of us. Uh, testimony. But Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't open fire on the disciples. He takes, uh, he takes a moment and he teaches them. There's mo no major sharp rebuke here. There's just teaching, and here it is. So let's read what Jesus does. He knows what they're talking about. He knows they're prideful. He knows it's a bad thing. So he sits down and he calls the 12 over. That's a classical position of a teacher. He sits down. He calls the 12 over. And he tells them, if anyone wants to be first, they must be last and servant of all. And he takes a child and puts him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms and said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So what, what is this all about? So in that day and time, and I don't know about today, um, I don't know that it's true today, maybe it is, but in that day and time, children were not very well regarded. They were the lowliest of the low. They had no status. They were weak. They were dependent. They were often ignored, unnoticed, and dismissed. 
okay? That's a child. They're often ignored, unnoticed, and dismissed. They have nothing to offer society. So Jesus takes a child and he says, this is the kind of person we should be serving. Unnoticed, lowly status of weak, dependent, and ignored. They have nothing really to offer. This is the kind of person we should be serving. This is the kind of person, when you, if you can serve this kind of person, then you can be great in the kingdom. It's an object lesson. We don't literally have to be like you know, a child. We have to have that spirit. But we know ultimately that Christ himself is our model. He had just told us the Son of Man is going to have to die at the hands of men. And he, so he, he is preparing them. He says, you guys can't be great until you're first and servant of all. And Jesus sets the standard, doesn't he? He sets the standard for all of us. In Philippians chapter 2, he tells us, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 3 through 11, Philippians chapter 2. Jesus himself is our example. He sets the ultimate example of not being prideful, but being humble, which is the opposite of pride, humility. So how do you become, how do you do this? How do you not be prideful? How do you become more humble in your walk? Well, we have to go to the Old Testament. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 and 2. Isaiah 66 tells us, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to me, came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So God is the only one who can exalt himself about anything. And I mean, guys, I used to think, um, like, why does God always exalt himself? That's kind of selfish. That's kind of prideful. But he's the only one he can exalt. If, think about it. If God were to exalt in anything else in the universe, that thing would be better than God. God has to exalt himself. That, he is the greatest. He is the only pure, holy, awesome thing in the universe. There is nothing greater. If God glorified anything else, then that would be God. So that makes, makes sense, right? All right. God is the only one who can exalt himself about anything. So this great God, this awesome creator of our universe, I mean, we, we as Christians look for his favor. We look for his pleasure. Uh, pleasing God pleases me. So what is, what is that? Well, Isaiah tells us, God respects, he looks upon, he, got, he regards, and he favors the poor and humble. The poor and humble. And we'll get into contrite in a minute. But a poor and humble person is lowly and afflicted and needy and troubled. Guys, that is not what our society looks for. We do not want people to be lowly, afflicted, needy, and troubled. As a matter of fact, when I, when I deal with needy people, I lean away from them. Y'all may be not that way. But if I meet a needy person, I tend to go the other direction. Now, I don't think God's telling us to be whiny. I think he's telling us to, to know ourselves, that we don't have anything to offer that's good. It's the only thing good that we can offer is what God gives us. So there's some biblical examples for us. Thank goodness there's some biblical examples. I give you Joseph. Remember Joseph in the coat of many colors? Is that, was that prideful or what? 
So God takes him down a couple of notches, and he gets thrown in prison. And he, in Genesis chapter 4, he, goes to, he gets a chance to, to uh, get out of prison, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh, it is not in me to give you an answer. God will give Pharaoh an answer. Even though he has this great gift to, to interpret dreams, Joseph doesn't say, you know, first of all, I want this and this and this, and first of all, I need this and this and this. And he says, God will give you the answer. So that's pretty humble. David is another good example, although he's also a good example of some things we shouldn't do. But here he's a good example of things we should do. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he, had, he says to the Lord, Who am I, Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me here? That's pretty good. Who am I? He was the apple of God's eye. He was God's chosen and anointed king of Israel. He's the king that united the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that brought everyone together. He was a warrior king that brought the nations and, and did amazing things in God's eyes. But he tells God, who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me here? He knows what he is. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's just a guy. And he recognizes God's authority in his life. Isaiah the prophet's another good example. When he sees God, when God takes him to the throne room of heaven, and he sees the Holy Spirit and God and the smoke and all of the, the glory of God and the seraphim are out there chanting, holy, holy, holy. What does Isaiah do? Does he like start taking notes? No, the first thing Isaiah does, he falls to his knees and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am unclean. Woe is me, for I am unclean. Who can stand in the presence of God and not feel that way? There's a New Testament example. It's funny. You know, we use Peter a lot. Peter is our example of like all the bad stuff, but he's also an example of all the good stuff. He's such a radical character. In Luke chapter 5, Peter falls down on his knees in front of Christ, and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He knows what he is. He knows he is a sinful man. So that is the humble. Those are our examples of humility. If you're looking for, I tell kids all the time at school, you know, find somebody to emulate. Find a hero. Find a person you like and emulate that person. God, this is our, these are our heroes. These are the people we should emulate. Ultimately, Christ is the example. He's the one we should emulate. But the Bible gives us, thank goodness, people that are not totally perfect who do right things at right times, like Joseph and David and Isaiah and Peter. So what else does God look for in Isaiah chapter 66? He looks for a, a poor and humble spirit, but he also looks for a contrite person, a contrite heart. What in the world? That's an Old Testament word. Nobody says contrite anymore, do they? Contrite is grief experienced as a consequence of the revelation of sin. It's grief experienced as a consequence of the revelation of sin. Does that speak for itself? I don't know about you, but um, when God finally became very, very real to me, when I knew him as, as Lord and Savior, I was overcome with my sin. I was, I was, I was in tears on my knees about how, how sinful a person I was and how God could love me that much. And only by the grace of God, I mean, the blood of Christ, the cross of Jesus, he came down into my life and loved me that much. That's a contrite spirit. I don't know that I'm humble all the time, guys, but that contrite spirit definitely has been part of my life many, many times. So what are we to do? How do we get that humble spirit? How do we become a humble and contrite person? The Bible tells us. If you look in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, A man should not think, think of himself more highly than he ought. A man should not think of himself more highly than he ought. I don't know how, guys, I don't know how you do that. I, to me, I, I look in the mirror and that's enough. <laughs> I know what kind of person I am. Um, I know that uh, this is not a problem for just for us in the age of selfies and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and all of the posts about our own lives, our stories. 
That's very prideful. That's very arrogant stuff, guys. But this is a problem that's been around forever. Even Shakespeare wrote about it. When he wrote his famous play about Julius Caesar in the assassination of Julius Caesar, he, uh, his main character, Brutus, is tempted because of pride. And Cassius comes to him and he tells Brutus, he says, Brutus, can you see yourself? And Brutus very wisely says, no, that the eye cannot see itself except by reflection in what others tell him. Except by reflection in what others tell him. So that's, to me, that's like Shakespeare being brilliant, which he is, awesome, yes. But I think that that's what we as Christians can do is we can look at ourselves and we can see our reflection, but we also need to ask others. We need to check each other. That's what life groups are for. That's what church is for. We, we as Christians have to go and correct one another in love. The Bible, uh, the Bible tells us that all scripture is useful for teaching and what? Correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. That's what the Bible's for. We as Christians correct and train and rebuke and teach. That's what we do. Even and Shakespeare knew that. He says, we cannot see ourselves except by reflection and what others tell us about ourselves. Folks, if you see one of us, especially in the eldership, and we seem prideful, and we seem, if we're doing something that is not appropriate as a Christian, as a man, as a person of, of repute, when I say repute, ill or good, but if you see it, please correct us. That's what Christians do. That's what the Bible does. It's there for correcting. So that's pretty easy, right? You know, it's not easy, but you need to do it. I challenge you to do it. Don't let us off the hook. All right, Romans 12. What else can we do? There's more. There's always more, right? Romans 12, 16. It says, live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty. Live in harmony and do not be haughty. Guys, what do you need, what do you need to know there? That's, that's it. Live in harmony. And there's nothing worth fighting about. We don't have to argue the gospel. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't, you can stand in front of people all day and if the gospel says, I don't believe all that. You know what? That's your choice. I am here to proclaim it to you. You don't have to argue with people about the gospel. You don't have to tell them how great church is. You just have to proclaim it. It is great. It is great. They, whether they choose to come or not, that's up to them. But church is great. God is great. The Bible is great. Being a Christian is pretty great. And people have to know that. We proclaim it. Don't fight. It's not worth fighting about. Don't be arrogant. Just tell it like it is. I got in trouble the other day. Can you imagine that, me getting in trouble? The, uh, you know, one of the, there was a person who was not doing, young couple, not married, doing, doing things, you know, they shouldn't be doing. And I said something. I said, you know, that's not God's plan for, for marriage. That's not God's plan for a man and a woman. And immediately, what do you think that person said? Do not judge, lest you be judged. And I said, wait a second here. I don't think you heard me say that was bad or wrong. I think you just heard me say, that's not God's plan. What did you, I said, Are, do you think it's bad? Do you think it's wrong? Well, you're judging me. No, 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 no. It sounds like you're judging, God's judging you through the Holy Spirit. But I'll take that. I'll take that heat. I don't mind doing that. So don't fight. Live in harmony with one another in all humility. Philippians chapter, we already read Philippians chapter 3. It says, don't do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And he says, look not to, the own, to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Folks, I, I struggle with that. There's things that I do in my day that are all about my interest. And I, there are a lot of things I can do better about, to help the interests of others. So I, I struggle with that. Pray for me. The Bible tells us also in Micah, what does the Lord require of you? Micah 6, 8. But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God or with God. Again, our greatest example of humility is Jesus Christ. So let me kind of wrap up, bring all this to a close. Uh, uh, we got more, we got a little more to talk about here, but we're kind of, kind of, kind of try to wind this thing down. 
So one thing that, that teaches us, the scripture teaches us in Mark chapter 30 through verse 37, is that we need to trust God, even when we don't understand what he's doing. Just trust him. I, I remember the illustration um, of the father who takes the kid to the doctor. And of course, it's time for shot. It's time for vaccinations or something. And the little boy doesn't understand. So the dad ends up having to hold the kid down in order for the doctor to give him the shot. And he's crying out, why are you doing this to me? Why are you hurting me? Why are you letting this doctor hurt me? And the dad knows that, it's, that I love you this much. I love you this much. And the doctor has to do this. You have to get this. You have to go through this pain at this moment. You don't understand, little boy, little girl, son of mine, daughter of mine. But this is, this is necessary because I love you. Even though we don't understand, even though I don't understand why I had to go through cancer twice and why I had to still going through treatment, still dealing with all that stuff, I don't understand all that. God does. It may come to me later on down the road, but I trust God. Who else is there to trust? The second thing is to beware of pride. Trust God and beware of pride. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. It was Abraham Lincoln who says, very uh, in Abraham Lincoln-esque terms, he says, uh, the skunk is killed because of his own publicity. The skunk is killed because of his own publicity. Don't toot your horn too loudly. And I'm not saying that you're like a skunk or anything. That's, but you get the idea. All right. In Isaiah 66, we know that God looks on the humble and contrite. That's the kind of person he looks for. So pray for a poor and humble and contrite spirit. Now, how, how do you do this? How do you get a poor, humble, contrite spirit? Guys, I found a scripture this week that will just knock your socks off. It will just knock your socks off. So I want to share it with you. It's Jeremiah 23, 29. 23, 29. As much as I have read the Bible, the Bible still amazes me with things that God reveals. This was an amazing scripture when I read it. Jeremiah 23, 29. Let's read it. It says, It is not, is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. It is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. Boom. Folks, if this is God's word. The more you read it, the more God reveals, the more humble and contrite you become. Is that not true? I mean... The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. The more you know, the more you realize how pitiful and pathetic we really are. This is the more sin God reveals in our lives. Uh, this week, I, I hope I, I won't violate any trust. I won't share any names, but an example of this came out this week in our life group. We were sharing, we're going through Romans, and we got to um, a scripture in Romans, and uh, one member of our life group shared that you know, even as a Christian, a, a young Christian, this person had believed things that were incorrect. And as she began studying God's word, this, uh, the scripture that she's referencing in Romans, God spoke to her powerfully through it, and it changed her life. It changed her life. So that's a great example. I mean, I don't want to give away details or names, but God used the scripture to change her life. That one verse in Romans changed her life. And it, like, like a fire, like a hammer, it broke her. After that, folks, amazing. amazing. God was able to use her in amazing ways. I would challenge you to let God's word break you. Let God's word break you. If you haven't been broken by God's word, if you haven't been broken by God's love, you haven't been broken by God's faithfulness, folks, you need to be broken. If once you're broke, then like the potter in the clay, he can make you new again and make you into a vessel of useful purposes. So be broken. Let God's word break you. Another thing you can do is serve others. Serve others. Do things for other people. What kind of people? The lowly, the dependent, the unnoticed, the ones who have nothing to give. 
Those are the people we should be serving. Now, now I will tell you this. There's, some, uh, there's a little bit of uh, uh, specificity here. In chapter uh, 9, Mark 9, 37, Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So, you know, I pray when you study these scriptures, you pray for God to reveal and hope you land in the right place. Without a doubt, every commentator that I read said Jesus is speaking to other believers. He's speaking about other believers, not just strangers in the world. We serve other believers this way. He's talking about other believers, believers who are unnoticed, believers who are who are dependent, who are lowly, who have nothing to give. And I, this is sort of like the uh, when you go into church, you, you immediately know who, who the people in charge are. But sometimes we forget to notice the people that are un, out there just blending in, trying to hide in the crowd. And that's one reason my family and I didn't end up at a very large church again is because well, I don't want to hide. I want to be involved. I want to be out there getting my hands dirty. But serve others. So we're going to trust God. We're going to beware of pride. We're going to pray for humble and contrite spirit. We're going to let God's word break us. We're going to serve others. We're going to love like Jesus. We're going to love like Jesus. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. And finally, well, there's a couple more, couple more things here, but almost finally, be last. Don't be so self-centered. Regard others more than yourself. Regard others more than yourself. Be last. It's funny, if you watch uh, the life group at our, in our house, everybody's kind of waits back. We say, okay, let's pray, let's eat. And nobody starts. Everybody wants to be last, so nobody's first. It's just uh, sort of a strange irony there, but be last, guys. If you're the one who's always first and, and not thinking about others, fix a plate for your family, fix a plate for someone else, be last, so don't, uh, don't be first. Jesus tells us that, be last and servant of all. There's a good story as we wrap this thing up. There's a good story I used to teach in English uh, called The Gift of the Magi. Now, it's sort of a Christmas story, and it's July, so Christmas in July, you know, I get, it's a reach. The Gift of the Magi, it's about these two, this young couple and uh, very, very poor, just starting out in life, and they live in a small, small apartment. And this, the man, you know, he's, like I said, they're really, really, really poor. It's like in the 1930s during the Depression, kind of poor. Well, the only thing, the only precious possession he owns is a watch his father gave him. And I don't know if it's, I don't know, we don't know if it's pure gold or silver or anything, but it's precious to him. And it's an impressive piece to look at. It's a pocket watch. He pulls it out. He winds it, you know, when he's in public. He likes people to see it. Boy, it is really special. Very beautiful. So pocket watch, that's his most precious possession. And his wife, she really doesn't have a pocket watch or anything, but she has the most beautiful, lustrous, long hair that anyone has seen in the area. It's gorgeous. You know, these are the, the ladies that have hair like Fair Fa I don't know, Fair Fawcett. I'm dating myself. Beautiful long hair, right? This gorgeous, it's, it's the envy of everyone who sees it. So um, Christmas is coming. They don't have any money to share. And, they, and the husband really wants to get his wife a special gift. And he sees a, a set of tortoiseshell combs that will look beautiful in her hair. And they're, but they're really, really expensive. These are tortoiseshell combs. So he ends up pawning his watch, selling his watch to get her the combs. The wife, not I mean, she doesn't know he's done this, but the wife really wants to do something special for her husband. And she ends up finding a, this gorgeous titanium or silver, I forgot. It's this precious metal, gorgeous watch chain to hold his watch. Well, she, well, she knows that's the thing. That's what he's got to have for his beautiful watch. So she goes and sells her hair to get him the watch chain. Christmas morning, they both open their presents and they just laugh and they love each other and they go out for dinner and it's an amazing moment of, of not pridefulness, but humility and love and service. Guys, I challenge you, those, that's the kind of love, that's the kind of humility that we need to show. 
I'll leave you with one scripture and then we'll pray. Isaiah 57, 15 says, God knows the proud from afar, but dwells with him who is contrite and lowly. God knows the proud from afar, but dwells with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. I wonder what your relationship is like with God. Is he far away or is he right here with you? And we know that God never changes, so it's we who change. But the Bible tells us that God knows the proud from afar, and he dwells with him who is contrite and lowly. I pray God is a very, very close companion with you, even in today's challenging time with COVID and, and restaurants and being closed and people out of work and sometimes grocery stores not having what you want, not getting to fellowship like you want to fellowship. Even today, Sunday morning, we don't get to fellowship like we want to fellowship. It's a, it's a tough time, but I pray God is right there with you. I pray you are right there with God, letting him comfort you and support you and lift you up. That's all I got, guys. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, teaching us today about what it means to be humble and lowly in spirit and contrite. Thank you, Father, for the, the example that Christ sets for us on the cross. Thank you, Father, for um, the little children, the child he, he was, that was right there at the right time that he was able to sit before the, the disciples and use as an, an example of what it means to serve others, to be humble in spirit. Thank you, God, for <clears throat> how Jesus talked to his disciples in these private lessons, these intimate conversations where they were able to understand, or not, not necessarily understand all the time, Father, but you, you revealed to them things that had to happen, and you taught them what it was going to be like and what they need to be like to be a church. I ask, God, that you let us, let us follow those examples, your example and their example. Help us to be low in spirit, humble and not prideful. Forgive us, God, for our pride. Help take it away. Help us to trust you in all things, Lord. I pray for everyone, every family that uh, in our church. I pray you'd minister to their homes, that you'd watch over them and keep them safe, that there's healing and strife that you would bring. Uh, if there's sickness and strife, that you would bring healing and comfort and peace to the home. I pray, Father, for our church, that you bring us back together soon, that you'd help this COVID and this uh, crisis end soon, that you'd bring a cure and help us to gather together with comfort and peace and no fear. Father, we trust you. Uh, you're the only one we can trust. We look to you for deliverance, for hope. I ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.